and welcome back for another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. One of the best things about doing this podcast, Venters, is interviewing some of my closest friends and helping them with their mental health. It's a privilege I forget sometimes, so for this episode, I'm speaking to an old friend who I've known for just about 10 years now. That man is Remal Bala. Me and Reems went to the same sixth form college, where we were in the same classes for English and history. Most of the time, it was me cracking jokes and sometimes doing the work. Remal was a qualified journalist and had his first byline in The Guardian quite recently, and has also had articles in various local papers in London and Essex as well. His journalism journey, identity, relationships, anxiety, and more are all on the menu. This is how our check-in went. Remal, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate you giving up your busy time and schedule to talk to me. How are you, bro, first of all? Mate, Sunday morning, doing this for you, Freddie. No, I'm loving it, yeah. I'm having a good time at home for a bit now, but doing well, mate, yeah. Yourself? Yeah, I'm decent, mate. You weren't late to this, which is like the first time you've ever not been late, so... I tell you, man, I'm, I'm a changed man. I'm, I'm a, you know, I've got my responsibilities now in order. I said in the intro of the pod that we went to school together and we're in the same social group from that school. I hope the boys are all going to listen to this pod. They better do. What are your memories of those days, first of all, just quickly, and leave out the ones about me if you can? <laughs> I can't leave the ones about you, man. I remember you slipping on a patch of ice whilst doing the, uh, you know, that walk. That, that, was, that was proper funny. That was good times, man. It was really chilled. Like, we used to have a lot of uh, humorous conversations. Me, you, Haseeb, John, he's gone off the radar a little bit. Rahul and Ali and all that. You know, it was, a little, it was a close-knit group. I think as we got older, like, you know, we kind of understood each other more. But then, you know, uni came. And as groups happen, you know, they, they get divided, don't they? Slightly. Well, I think it's more like you, you make your own paths and then you all come back to each other once you get home, basically. Like, I think that happens in every group, doesn't it? Yeah, hopefully. I guess some groups are really well meshed and some groups, they come together maybe less often as they should. But when they do, then it's a really good time. I think hopefully we'll meet up in October. Right. We've got that out of the way. Shall we just get started? The best place to start with, Reams, is your career in journalism. So we should preface this by saying you're still in your early days, shall we say, as a journalist. But firstly, tell me a bit why you wanted to be a journalist, how you got into the industry and how your love for writing started. You know, everyone's at high school, everyone's secondary school studying a subject that they love. And same with you and me. We studied very arty subjects like history. You studied politics. We did English together. It's like it kind of opens the route to creativity. The problematic thing is after uni, finishing this, you don't really get a guidance as to where do you want to go with these skills of argumentation, debate, creativity. It's always like Oh, just going to consultancy in it because it's 28k. But journalism, I always loved writing, man. Even when I was a kid, I used to watch TV shows. I used to love Scooby Doo, man. I'll, I'll be honest, and I used to write my own mystery stories as a kid. So it starts from there, right? You got to have a passion for something, and I guess journalism is a, a way in to tell other people's stories, but at the same time, report on stuff that isn't really reported on. So that's why I love journalism. I love documentary as well. My passion for journalism, I guess my dad used to love writing. He used to force me to write sometimes. I used to 
bloody hate it, but it's pushed me in the right direction as well. As you know, man, I'm, I think I'm a bit of a creative person. So you know, I used to make a, YouTube videos here and there. I used to write a bit of like my blog and stuff. So yeah, all these little passions gather and they fuel something and hopefully praying that journalism's the, the right way for this passion to emerge. And was it your master's course which sparked this desire to pursue journalism as a career or was it just the mechanism that you needed to do it anyway? thing is, my master's course was on film studies. You know, at the end of the day, I want to become a documentary filmmaker, not a Louis Theroux-esque because hopefully I'm slightly less awkward. I'm not going to lie, one of my inspirations was not my master's degree. It's Michael Palin. I used to watch some of his documentaries as a kid, like Travelling the World. And he used to travel and he used to experience cultures. You know, he's getting paid to do this, man, get paid to travel. And now, like, YouTube becomes so big. People are travelling by themselves, vlogging themselves. Hopefully my film studies course could propel me this way. But, again, there was no real guidance after the course ends. There's no, like, oh, you can go here to get a little internship. You know, you've got to do it all by yourself, which is hard. Because sometimes you need a little contact here and there. Or sometimes you need something that makes you stand out from the rest of the other film studies people. So I think what really propelled me to do journalism is this course I did with News Associates. It, it was a good course, but COVID struck. And I just wanted to write and hopefully doing a bit of freelancing. But you need something to motivate you, I think. That's the key. Do you want to talk about the first byline you ever had and what impact that had on you? Because I guess for every journalist, whatever outlet it's in, it must be an important moment. Yeah, man, getting a byline, even at the smallest local paper is, is something, right? Because your name's out there, you've put the graft in and you've interviewed someone or you've just written an opinion piece, whatever you've done, you've put your writing out there, hopefully in a style that kind of reflects you as well. So my first byline was in the Hackney Gazette. It was about a man who tattooed himself during coronavirus, full body, fully tattooed, mate. Wild. And basically, I, I somehow just found him on Instagram, this guy, this guy called Chris. I was like, oh, mate, do you want to be interviewed for local paper he was like yeah sure sure I'll be honest I was quite nervous interviewing someone in the end I just sent him questions on Instagram I didn't I didn't actually phone him or anything got into the local Hackney Gazette and then like three weeks later I see the BBC's covered a long read on him clearly they did their own interview clearly they took their own photos but clearly showed that I could find a good story but my first real achievement was Peace in the Guardian I was wondering because I love football as we both do man and yeah, I just realised why the hell aren't there any Asian footballers in the modern game, in the professional game? I, I'm not saying there needs to be a forced quantity of Asian players, yeah, quotas, but it'd be nice to see a few. There must be some talented Asian footballers out there. And I was like, okay, well, lesser women couldn't find any. I trawled through all the FA women's leagues trying to find Asian surnames. That's how I fueled this piece. Couldn't find much. Found about two, I think one for Aston Villa, another for Derby. And then I somehow found this girl on Instagram again. Instagram's been a saviour for my journalism career. And she, her name, Millie, half white, half brown. She was like, yeah, sure, I'll be interviewed. And she plays in Serie A women's, which is really, really high level. It's top, top level football in Italy. And I was like, yeah, let's interview you and pitch it to the Guardian the first time. One of the guys didn't like the story. Well, he didn't, didn't like it. He said, we don't have the funds to commission it. And then I emailed another guy and he was like, yeah, this sounds interesting. I've not, I've not heard much about, you know, the Asian scene in women's football. So, yeah, go on, send me the questions. And he loved it and tweaked it a little bit to the Guardian style, you know, how they are. And got the piece in, maybe mid-May, something like that. I don't even remember. I should know this because it's a bloody good moment. But, yeah, got it in and it's there for life, I hope, unless they delete it or something. I know you're still relatively young in your journalism career, but so far, mate, what have been some of the challenges you faced breaking in and also maybe from a personal perspective, maybe developing skills or developing your interviewing skills and stuff like that? 
Oh man, okay, let's start with the interviewing. I'm not a big fan of the interview, I'll be honest. I'm like that Richard Iwadi character, like, where he does the interview in Channel 4. For me, it's sort of forced. I want it to be a conversation, but at the same time, you have to extract something from the person, like, you know, the other side. But at the same time, I try and, like, not think of this. I'm trying to, like, maybe have a conversation amidst their answers and stuff like that. Yeah, so my technique has definitely improved. I used to be, like I said, very shy. I used to DM people as opposed to phone them. Yeah, now pretty confident just calling them up because i think it also makes a difference if you work for a paper as well if you if you work for a reputable paper and you say hey, i I'm casually work with the guardian let me give an interview they'll be like yeah sure it's clout in it yeah 100 percent, man like at the beginning i was just working for a, a makeshift southwest london paper people were like what is this paper but you try and be as personable as possible you try and be like oh, yeah sure i'm very sensitive to whatever you're going to say if you want to say it you can if you don't that's fine so i interviewed a lot of different people man agoraphobics people who are low only, you know, even a woman who's been raped, knife carriers, they're not easy topics, some of these. So I think dealing with uh, tough interviewees has come slowly, but gradually and naturally. And what was your other question, mate? Oh, yeah, what other skills? Yeah, man, just writing to a deadline, motivating yourself during the pandemic. Not easy, man. Has there been a moment so far during this fledgling journalism career where you felt accepted into the industry or that byline in The Guardian, did it give you that big confidence boost? Or are you still navigating that even today? I'm still navigating it, man. It's not as if you get one piece in and you're a superstar. Yeah, you've, you've, got, you've got your name out there. But if you're a freelancer, as you know, man, you've got to churn out unique ideas. It's not like run of the mill. Here's another article about this Asian footballer. No, you've got to find something else to talk about, man. Yeah, it's hard to be a freelancer, man. You've got to really hone in on people and their stories and their individuality. It's hard to be a freelancer, I'm not going to lie. You have to have that motivation. You have to have the way of sourcing stories as well, which is tough. So this is why it's not easy breaking into the journalism industry. That's why I'm applying for more jobs now, as opposed to being a freelancer. Yeah, which is a bit strenuous, especially when... I'm fortunate, though, because I live at home with my parents. I'll be honest, I am privileged not to pay any bills. If I did, I'd be screwed. If I had bills to pay, I'd be working in my old job of recruitment. So the ability for me to live at home right now with the support of my parents gives me the chance to pursue what I want to pursue, as opposed to work in a good, well-paid job, not going to lie, but dead, mate. It was so dead, the previous job I had. But that's also why I wanted to just pursue. I was like, F this, I'm getting a bit of money in the bank. But if you have the ability to pursue something purely not just because of financial things and yeah just pursue it I think and yeah still navigating man still navigating we're going to come on to the whole privilege aspect in a bit but before we do that have you ever felt like you might be pigeonholed because of that article on South Asian footballers into solely writing on South Asian issues because I think that's an issue that I find when I speak to journalists who are from South Asian backgrounds or from black backgrounds that they feel like they are commissioned or are likely to be commissioned to solely talk about race and identity issues as opposed to just anything so yeah pigeonholed hold into sectors of journalism that relates to purely about race no i don't think so despite my article being about football and asian people players in football that sparked purely because of my interest in football and the lack of asians there it's not because i am asian therefore i shall talk only about asians and doesn't mean i'm a expert about brown people or asians either it's just the fact that i just saw something and that sparks an interest it's sort of impulsive so when i wrote a piece about knife crime i saw it was in Stratford where this young kid got killed in broad daylight it wasn't because of his race or anything it was purely because Stratford broad daylight Westfields I go there literally once a week to bloody return clothes I don't like going back to the serious point it's just anything that has some sort of proximity sparking interest something that 
hasn't really been talked about really in the media, then I'm like, why not? So the why is the important point. And I'd like to think that editors of any paper would have that professionalism not to just say he's got an Asian name, therefore he should talk about this. I'm presuming not. It's also that depends on the person. If you're a certain colour and you just want to talk about identity politics, well, then that's all you're going to talk about. If you want to talk about other things, then I hope there's no discrimination. But I don't, I don't know, man. I can't really comment on that too much. Let's talk a little bit about that article on knife crime in more detail, mate. Could you talk about it for the listeners who haven't read it? And then maybe the mental health angle of the boys who are involved in knife crime, maybe the expectations placed upon them, the peer pressure, social media, etc. Like I said, the interest was sparked by seeing this news story. I mean, you see news stories every day of young boys being killed on the regs for nothing, for absolutely nothing. Mistaken identity, not even killed, man, like acid being thrown at people's faces. There used to be a spate of that in Westfields. It's just over nothing, right? People think it's over nothing, but the mental health angle behind that is actually these boys have expectations fueled from desires social media pressures fueled from their peers fueled from even you know their backgrounds and maybe even dysfunctional families there's a lot of things that go into this melting pot of here we go i'm gonna do something bad to someone else and i wanted to explore this in my article again i get lucky with some of my interviews honestly instagram don't know why i keep praising it because bloody causes some of these incidents but i found this evolutionary psychologist on there literally has 15 followers i don't know how i found him i just hashtag knife crime i'll stop knife crime and he, he turned up called chris chris grandison he talked about why young kids even from the age of let's say 10 11 could veer into knife crime based on their behaviors and sometimes the home environment the school environment aren't the best places for them to develop because they feel first of all at home they don't feel any connection there at school they don't feel any connection with their education so then they act like really boisterous they act really inattentive and stuff but he told me that you know if you nurture them if you find these boys at young and you nurture them in that right direction if you nurture their energy then they can put their energy into something positive. Otherwise, their energy will go into something negative, like knife crime, like gangs. It's tough as well, because the thing is, again, I'll go back to privilege. I'm not, I've grown up in not in the best area. Dagenham is not the best area, but privileged to go to school, privileged to have good mates, privileged to have an education, privileged to have parents who want you to get one. But if I didn't have any of that, who knows? Maybe you could have veered into a gang just to get some money, right? Because it's easy money. You get the love of the gang. And then you have the expectation of not wanting to back down. I sort of get it as well sometimes when I'm driving. That's the worst. It's like when someone horns at you, sometimes I'll stop the car put my head out the window what are you hoarding for it gave us a minute that sort of rage that maybe that's just road rage i don't think that's toxic masculinity you don't want to back down sort of thing and these kids they adopt this personality trait very young and the killing happened all over some social media shit and some social media beef one member swore at another or something and then you know you get this back and forth back and forth usually you might just say well what the hell it's trivial but to them it was huge it was like well whoever wins is the man in the person's mind maybe in the others they don't even care and in the end yeah the guy got stabbed because one of them wanted to triumph over the other and the only way to do that is to get rid of the other so it was really sad man but hopefully you can prevent things like these happening in the future i spoke to a former knife carrier as well and he told me yeah the best way to do it is to okay fair enough some of them will go into the gang but you have to groom them out of the gang in a way that they want to be groomed out of the gang you can't groom them out just by giving them really shit jokers or something you've got to give them something they want and i know it's a bit superficial but kids teenagers they have a lot of desires they have a lot of material desires 
they're not fully grown adults where they've seen the world and all that. So yeah, he told me, yeah, I used to carry knives, but went to prison, got reformed. And uh, when he came out, he just started opening a food bank for the homeless. And he used to talk to kids in school on how to groom them out of gangs. The article encompasses a lot, man. It encompasses knife carriers, the why people resort to violence, what is being done about it, especially in communities, disadvantaged communities, a lot of these kids in council houses and stuff. So it's a good article, yeah. When we were younger, knife crime was commonly associated from the general public's perspective with grime. Now, the general public associate knife crime with drill. Do you think, I mean, and there's obviously some problematic lyrics in drill, as much as I love the genre, but do you think drill for some of these boys is a creative outlet and allows them to stay off the road? Or do you think it's a bit more deeper than that? I've not listened to tons of drill, I'm not going to lie. But I've listened to one recent. It was really funny, man. I'll link you it later. Drill's got that sort of passion, hard-hitting lyrics as well. Admittedly, some of the lyrics do talk about wounding others. And I'm not well-versed in slang, modern slang. I know, like, peng and shit, but I don't know, like how drill works in a sense you know like dip and chef and all that yeah what is that mate what i have no idea i'll say it's not the best influence the thing is i've seen some of these videos and some of them are wearing like balaclavas i think clothing is a big thing i'm not gonna lie like this is not talked about a lot if you're wearing like a hoodie in the middle of the day covering your face with bloody covid it sort of like brings that negative connotation to you like is that a negative connotation from someone who's not educated do you see what i mean because if me and you wore a hoodie, no one would give a shit. True, true. I think it's... Uh, there's a lot of way people act as well. I've been mugged, man. I was naive. I've had an experience. I, I walked out of the gym one time at night. It was eight. It was dark. It was during winter time. I was naive. But was I naive is the question. I walked out and I saw a group of lads. Four lads, uh, all slightly taller than me, all wearing hoodies. This woman was in front of me. She walked past them. That's fine. And I was like, okay, I had my headphones on. And I just walked as well. I didn't have any prejudice or anything. Yeah, I was a bit nervous because there's four lads and you're just walking in the dark. But then, yeah, they just stopped me and they picked my headphones off. One guy rode off and then they started like punching me and shit. And then I was fortunate. I was backing away. My phone was in my bag, fortunately. So they didn't get that. They ripped some of my clothes off. Yeah, I held onto this bin that was behind me, fortunately. And this woman came out. I was just first uh, cry of call was like, help. Fortunately, she helped me and they, they even gave me one more punch and they ran off. So... I don't even know, man, if I was too naive there. I don't even know. So that's why now I'm a bit distrusting of people in groups in a shady environment wearing certain clothes. It's, it's kind of all factors in one. If they're like in Westfield wearing a hoodie, that's calm. Because, you know, open environment, nothing wrong. You can wear what you want. But if you're like on the street at night wearing a hoodie in the dim light, you're looking down, I would probably avoid that person purely because of my experience I've had before. So it's like a fear of people loitering. Yeah. And also combine that with the time of day. If it's during the day, fine. And also combine that with certain types of clothing. It's a lot to do with psychology of what's happened before and what could happen based on the same factors. Let's go back to journalism now. Journalism in many respects is seen from the outside as quite an elitist profession. It's riddled with unpaid internships and companies. Some of them might be willing to exploit Young journalists trying to climb this greasy pole. Many journalists who are able to get ahead have to rely on the financial backing of parents. You know, you've said you're quite privileged, but you recognise that, at least you're self-aware enough. Tell me a bit about some of the inequalities that maybe you've seen in journalism, Remal, and then the impact that having that parental support has had on you, because you mentioned that they never put any pressure on you to fit a certain bracket or pursue a certain thing. They've given you the freedom to do what you want. 
Yeah, they've given me that freedom to choose an, an arty line of life that you know what I mean. Freedom to take more time and get to the stage of professional career as opposed to 21, that's it. You're either a bank or in, in the, one of those ivory towers in central London, or you go to engineering school, you become an engineer or a doctor. I guess my dad, he was very creative himself. He, he did film studies. He loved the camera. So there was no pressure from him ever, apart from to learn French. He bloody wanted me to learn French. If I didn't, then I'd disowning. That was a potential now. So the freedom was there. My mum also, she's pretty cool. She's really chill, man. I wouldn't say she's a typical parent. <laughs> but at the same time, she does pressure me to do stuff in my life. I'm not going to bloody just lace around all day. Producing something, doing something, and then earning money is something as well. But that will come and that will hopefully come soon after this I am a qualified journalist now, so hopefully. The thing is, in any job, there are a limited amount of places in any company, right? So BBC have applied numerous times. I never got it because I didn't have anything back then. I didn't even have a portfolio back then. All I was was I had my desire to work at the BBC because I thought I was good enough. still think I am, but oh, well, it's just everyone, right? But then now I'm like, I don't even want to work there. I want to work somewhere slightly smaller and build your way up. So you get these experiences in life that you sometimes people want to be at the top straight away. And that's a nigh impossible task. Yeah, for me, it was like, I need to create a portfolio to get there. I think the inequalities stem purely from people who don't have the motivation. It's kind of a self-inflicted inequality sort of thing. Like if you don't have a portfolio, it's purely because you haven't got the motivation to create some articles. It doesn't even have to be a massive portfolio. You can just do a little bit of filming here and there. It's not impossible to interview people, but at the same time, you need to have, like you say, that clout of a journalist, of a magazine or a paper behind you. I think, yeah, if you're from a more disadvantaged background, if you don't have the funds to support yourself, then this profession is tough. Man. This, this is hard. Unless you have applied for a job and you've got it straight away. You know, if you have the talent to write and you have a slight portfolio and you have a lot of interest in journalism, you can get there with local papers. Maybe that's a good way to start if that's advice for journalists. Freelancing is tough if you've got bills to pay. I personally wouldn't advise that if you're not motivated and if you don't have the right contacts in the editorial field. That's really hard. But I think that's, that's probably one of the inequalities, not having the access to contacts that reply quickly. Some do some don't and then when they don't they're like what well, we've got a bill to pay if you've got your electric to pay at the end of the month then where are you going to get the money from right so it's sort of like freelancing as a journalist is a side hustle to a, like a real job which is sad because there's so many people with great ideas but then you've got to commission the best ones at the same time and you've got limited budget as an editor and just finally now looking ahead what dreams do you have in journalism are there particular outlets you want to write for perhaps transfer into television journalism or even host your own podcast like me <laughs> I'm not going to invade your space. Yeah, so dreams are, yeah, one day be a documentary filmmaker. That would be the ultimate. Or presenting in front of the camera. There's a reporter who's excellent for Vice called Isabel Young. She goes into these war-torn countries. She went to China, not recently, but a few years back and looked at the Uyghur community there at her own risk. And that would be a bloody amazing to just do that. It's the thrill of exposing something. Is just what's got me into journalism, right? Exposing the truth, finding what's really going on in different countries and also here like you know a lot of stuff here needs to be exposed as well she's brilliant and hopefully one day could emulate her reporting skills and her fearlessness and yeah maybe 
to reach that though you have to start small so uh, i want to write for a little magazine to start off with not saying the economist is little but that would be the dream start i mean i've just applied there so hopefully fingers crossed get that little digital position there as a writer because i don't like breaking news man. i'm not gonna lie i'm not about journalism i'm about the analysis behind why stuff happens which is why i wrote that knife crime piece which is why I wrote a loneliness piece. You want to know why stuff happens, not they happen, because. So yeah, man, I want to do more analytical pieces for magazines who have the ability to cater for that type of writing. So The Economist would be brilliant, like New Statesman, Atlantic, all that jazz. And yeah, man, if I do get a position like, you know, Guardian, I'm not going to shake my head at that. I'll be like, yeah, of course, I'll take that. you got to start somewhere. But if I don't, then you got to start even lower. And there's nothing wrong with working in local journalism, but there's a style of writing people like to do. And I like to do a lot of, I like to employ a bit of banter and probably in my work, I like to employ a bit of analysis as well. So yeah, Economist would be wicked to start off with. We've talked about Remal, the aspiring journalist, now qualified. Let's talk about your own journey in a bit more detail, mate. So why don't you firstly talk me through your early life, your teenage years, and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? You know, who's the Remal we meet here? As a kid, very creative. You know, used to write on the whim. Used to love reading. I used to read like so much, man. Maybe two books in a day. Not huge books, man. Like Goosebumps or something. Like they're very easy to read books. But now I'm just, you know, fucking about not even reading anything. But yeah, I used to be such a reader. I used to love observing stuff. Even as a kid, I used to observe a lot. I used to comment on a lot of things. Just observe. And I think that's kind of fueled my passion now of observing and commenting on things. And I think it does start from a young age, you know. I think if you're observational as a kid, then it fuels some later passion. Not going to lie, I used to be good at school. Used to get good grades. Even at Ilford County, I used to do really well, really well at school. And, you know, there's always me competing with Ashley, mate. It was me and him. Big chips. Big chips, mate. Big chips, me and him. Trying to get those seven A's for bloody year sevens. Didn't really count for anything. So yeah, man, I was always sort of top of the class without trying to boast. I hate boasting, man. But uh, yeah, we we're all there. I was very shy, man. I think I was really shy. With mates, I would speak just fine. But with others, it used to be a little shell there. Yeah, it used to be like, am I worth talking to these other people who aren't really my mates? But then I don't know if that was me just valuing my mates more or it was a bit of shyness. Yeah, that, that shyness was still around, even at uni. I was going from Ilford County, which is a majority brown, which is majority now. I don't know, man. Now it's probably like 99% Asian. It was 99% Asian back then. Yeah, I know. It was. It was probably 98%. 98, mate. It would be better. <laughs> going from Ilford County to Durham. Like Durham is like the complete antithesis. And I was like, shit, man. Should I have just gone to UCL instead? <laughs> it, oh, mate. Imperial would have been the pits, mate. It would just been no girls at all, <laughs> which is even worse. So yeah, man, I went to Durham and I was like, shit, man, I'm out of my comfort zone here. Purely because of skin colour, I'm not going to even be around the bush. There's no brown people here. <laughs> this is a new environment for me. So I presumed in my head, I was like, oh, there's a lot of white middle class or even upper class people in Durham. Will they accept me? Will they accept this brown guy from Dagenham who went to Upper County, whose all mates are like bloody speaking about pen girls and bear shit, you know, the slang. So, you know, the slang kind of dropped though. We were in sixth form, maybe not. A little bit. And yeah, went up there and I was like, shit, man, am I going to make mates? So I was really shy, man. First day in Durham, I didn't even speak to many people. Collingwood was my college. I think it's the biggest college in Durham. So I was really reluctant to speak to people. Or when I did speak to them, maybe I had this mentality in my head that, oh, would I be accepted here because of what I am or where I come from? And yeah, I just 
didn't make true friends. I kind of got lucky with my mates. There was one guy living next to me. His name's Aaron. He's a really nice guy. Still my mate now. And he was the avenue for me to meet other friends. Because otherwise, yeah, it would have been a pretty lonely time, I think. So somehow our group came together. I was like, two of these guys. All my mates from Durham are white, by the way. All of them. All white lads. All lovely lads. But then initially I was like, this isn't my scene. Where's the... Uh, Adnans and I can't even think of a bloody Asian name. See, I can't even think of one. But yeah, slowly, slowly got into the scene. Still was shy though. Still was shy. Like in a seminar, I would usually keep quiet. Partially because I didn't do shit or reading. Partially because, you know, I just felt like, is my voice worthy of the other people in the seminar sort of thing? So it, yeah, it was a lot of shyness to overcome. I think I overcame that when I went to France and taught in French schools. I taught English in French schools there for seven months, and that was really good because there the kids were so cool, man. They're really chilled. It's sort of like a friend-teacher relationship, but, you know, keeping the professionalism, of course. And that was kind of where the shyness dissipated off. That was good, man. But it doesn't completely go, I think. I'm not going to say it just goes. It's too simplistic to say that. There is still that, oh, is my opinion as valid as the other's vibe that sometimes you get in your head? I don't know what explains that. Maybe when you're younger, you don't really engage in too many conversations. I don't know. And I'm only child. Maybe that's why as well. There's only parents here. You stick to people who are close to you. You stick to your close-knit group. You stick to a small group. Therefore, when you go into a bigger group, your voice, maybe in my head, I'm like, my voice isn't as worthy given this kind of single, no sibling life sort of thing. I just want to come back quickly before we go on to your extended university life, mate, and talk about this introversion that you had. And what you mentioned here seems to be, I guess, some form of maybe social imposter syndrome. In our social group, I was probably, well, I was definitely the most extroverted and you were probably the most introverted. But I feel like we kind of balance each other out quite nicely. And I feel like I maybe brought you out of your shell. Maybe you brought me back down to earth a little bit at times. Do you think there's been some benefits to being introverted as well as you know obviously the challenges that you've experienced when it comes to engaging in social groups and stuff I think I'm less I'm defo less introverted now I think I'm more of a an extrovert defo not full fully flowing kind of extrovert like the considered extrovert who will take not just speak randomly again have that observing nature then speak sort of thing but I, I think you know this man even in our group i used to always crack jokes no matter how shit they were i used to always just crack them like me and Asib always had that banter that people were just grown at but I, I used to love it man and sometimes my jokes were good i'm not gonna put myself down too much yeah i thought that you were a good balance for me because you used to speak a lot i used to just sometimes take the piss as well so, you know maybe a joke here and there in a group yeah you can't have too many of me's you can't have too many of you's you gotta have a balance man you gotta have more considered observational people you gotta have the more outspoken as well problem is though that when you came it was only two i guess two years so it's not like a long-term impact from let's say year seven or something but at the same time it was a good influence to have like a different voice in the group a different perspective coming from outside coming to Ilford county was cool man i think now i'm defo less introverted there's a lot of other experiences that shape personality uni job other mates as well so i'd say yeah it was a good starting point having that small group and having different voices in that group i feel like mr champion's english lessons were like my favorite things just purely because how much we took the piss as a class 
And then Mr. Short, God rest his soul, our history lessons were pretty good. We talked a bit about your parents in the last topic, mate, but diving a bit deeper, the school we were in is obviously 98%, 99% South Asian boys. There are some stereotypes about South Asian parents and what they expect of their kids, which I found out a lot when I came to Ilford County. Just tell the listeners about those stereotypes and maybe why you were glad your parents didn't conform to that orthodoxy. Did that help you growing up, you know, surrounded by kids who maybe their parents did fall into that stereotype? So yeah, the stereotypes that are pretty prevalent and potentially true, potentially, I don't want to generalise, but they are that Asian kids, boys, girls have to be in a profession that is reputable. And reputable is, of course, very subjective, but reputable for for Asian parents would be well-paid, good title, and yeah, just when you speak to others, you can flaunt that title sort of thing. So that could be a doctor, engineer, lawyer, consultancy, even though the job is unsatisfactory, even though you don't like it, as long as you can flaunt that title to your family, to other people. And even if you're living at home and you're earning a lot of pee, they, they won't let you move out, you know, they, they've got to keep you at home, got to save that money. Can't be moving out. No, but that's just stereotypes. But these are stereotypes that exist. Things I don't know how times are changing, how maybe the Ilford County people we spent time with as well. You never know. But yeah, they had this mentality of always going into the STEM subjects as well. I remember doing a talk. We did the talk, Ilford County. And I addressed a lot of Asians, majority Asians. Most of them wanted to make them go into the sciences and the maths. And I was just thinking, why? What's hindering them from trying something else? Fair enough, if they want to do that, let them. But I felt there was sort of like an underlying, maybe a pressure there that if you go into the Englishes, the histories, you're not going to get a good job. You're going to be busting on the streets. I'm not going to lie. I think the problem with the school system as well, there's no career advice. No, uni was a be all and end all, wasn't it? Yeah, uni's, yeah, you go to uni, even at uni, there's no career advice. If you do English, yeah, you'd be great for a consultancy firm, mate. Yeah, you'd be wicked. But there's no like, oh, you'd be a great journalist or you'd be a great sound technician or just something else. I don't know. It's just the system or the lack of guidance is worrying for those who take history, who take psychology, who take whatever. And if you take biology, well, there are fields you can definitely go into. But when you take something like history, you're taking your skills and you're going to use that for something totally not related to history, probably. That's what's lacking, I think. And that's probably why some Asian parents also push kids to study sciences, partially because of their own wants and desires, but partially because of the lack of opportunities that are probably perceived by them, maybe. I wouldn't even hesitate to say that, yeah, there there are a lack of opportunities if you don't know the right people, if you aren't motivated to graft, make a portfolio, make a channel, make a pod. Yeah, stereotypes come also, though, from traditions of the same jobs being done in the family. And I think that's where my parents were quite chilled because my dad, like I said, studied the arts, went to the aviation business as a consultant, but not like a analyzing numbers and stuff, but more like promoting, like marketing. That's why they were quite chilled. And my mum was always really chilled as well. So I don't know where that stems from, mate. I'm not going to lie. Maybe it's a Mauritian thing. I don't even know, mate. I'm not going to lie. I don't even know where that stems from. I referenced your ethnic identity a bit vaguely earlier on for good reason, because you are Mauritian, which as a country, you told me doesn't 100% fall under South Asia or Africa. Just tell me a bit about this and this lack of concrete identity, I guess, to describe yourself. Do you classify yourself as Asian or African? And has that ever had an impact on your mental health? No, it's never had an impact on my mental health. That's for sure. But I kind of like it, though. I quite like being this 
mix of potential Asian, African, Indian Ocean. Because like Mauritius itself, it's just a dot, man. It's literally smaller than Birmingham, but it's got so many different people. It's got Chinese, it's got the Creoles, it's got the Indians, even the white populations who moved in ages ago. You've got like, like tourists and stuff. So it's just, it's a big conglomeration of different ethnicities. And as where it's situated in the Indian Ocean, it's off South Africa, near Madagascar, but it's in the Indian Ocean. So it's like, what are we? So even as some of my mates I speak to, we don't like to be defined as Asian. We don't like to be defined as African. We just say we're Mauritian. And if there's the other box to be filled out on a form, we'll do that and then we'll put Mauritian down, right? It's up to the person to do a little bit of research and to see where that is. I'm not going to start explaining to everyone. Yeah, it's never had a problem with my mental health. It's more interesting when someone asks you, oh, you're, you must be Asian. And you're like, no, 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 actually, I'm from here and this is where this is. It kind of sparks a conversation as opposed to, oh, you're Asian, you're from Gujarat. Well, everyone knows that's in India, therefore, let's end the conversation there sort of thing. So... No, it's a nice talking point, I think, being from Mauritius, as opposed to being a bad thing. I want to go back to university now, because there was one incident of racism you experienced whilst you were in Durham that you told me about off air. If you could just tell me a bit about what happened there and the impact it might have had on your mental health. So yeah, this was in, maybe it was final year or second year. One of the things, me and my mates were just playing on the field, a bit of football, all our exams had done. And yeah, just hear a little shout. I don't know who it is. It's in the blocks, Collingwood College blocks. And it's just like oh yeah, you're just playing football with a token brown guy. I was a bit shocked. I wasn't even angry. I was just a bit shocked. I was like, bloody hell. It's the first and last experience of racism that I had in Durham. I didn't expect that from educated fellas. And there was a guy who shouted this. I don't know who it was. And my mates were just like, oh, fuck this, man. Don't listen to him. Thing is, that's the beauty of it. I've never had it. And it was just that one instance. I was like, oh, I didn't expect it. That was the overriding emotion. It wasn't like anger. It wasn't like fear. It wasn't anything. It was just unexpectedness. Yeah, we just carried on playing. Didn't even linger too much. I just didn't give a shit. I've got my great mates here. All of them were white. I had black mates as well. I mean, it doesn't really matter what skin color they were. But I knew that this was a tiny, tiny person in the pool of people who weren't like him. And the thing is, maybe people who hung out with him had the mentalities. I don't know. I don't really care. The thing is, that's why I had my mates there, because they were so supportive. They just saw me as a guy to have fun with and to be a good mate with. Yeah, it didn't really affect my mental health too much, to be honest. Obviously, everyone wants some level of comfort in the environment they're in and see some people who look like them subconsciously or consciously. You took that upon yourself and you helped create the Durham Indian Society, despite being Mauritian. Tell me why you got involved in that and the positivity that gave you. I think, first of all, going back to the wanting to see someone who looks like yourself as well, I kind of wanted to have that London vibe as well. I didn't want to just have my mates who are from Norfolk or Leeds. I wanted that like, London vibe. One of my first mates was actually this black guy from London itself he spoke like i did like having the slang his name was toby i don't know where he is now man i hope he's all right so i wanted that london vibe that mesh of different ethnicities i think partially one side of this was i wanted to have that south asian or indian or hindu vibe there and i was shocked that durham one of the biggest unis in the bloody world didn't have a hindu society when you know up north newcastle northumbria had it i was like why doesn't durham have it well presumably because a lot of either not many hindus not many south asians there not many people willing to put this forward so I was like, yeah, let's try something here. Let's propose this to the committee. And they were like, yeah, sure, defo, let's do it. And we started it. And I'm not going to lie, it was tough. There's a lot of Indian people in, in Durham. Like, you just didn't realise a lot of Asians, a lot of Mar- 
apparitions even. But it wasn't supposedly just for brown, Asian, Indian people. It was for anyone to just want to come and experience like Diwali, Holi, just have a, watch an Indian film, have a Bollywood night. It's for anyone, man. Like you could have come and we're not exclusive. I probably would. Honestly, it, was, it wasn't even cringe I'm trying to still promote it, see? But I did well. Got my mate. He's a really good mate, Akash. We did a little Diwali dance together. I got him out of his shell because he had a similar vibe to me because he came from Leicester and that's like tons of Asians there yeah man and now it's grown a lot I'm still being invited to do elections as in still vote in elections yeah it was nice being president and nice to start something that's come quite far now one thing you spoke about off air to me Reams was the mental health angle about relationships so things like overthinking or anxiety and dating rumination and, and other issues if you could just tell me why you wanted to discuss this and then your experiences and you can go into as much or as little detail as you want. When you're with a mate, there's no commitment, right? There's no expectations. Like, you just got to be a good mate. You got to listen to them. But there's no romantic nature. There's a bromance. That can only go so far, right? But when you're with someone else, when you're with a girl, or if others, with a guy, whatever, but there's this expectation of, having to do things with them for them listen to them whatever am i uh, you know had relationships here and there where they haven't worked i'm not the most confrontational person ever i will like i say get a bit mad here and there when there is injustice when i think i'm in the right when it's like over a petty thing like i don't know i think i'm coming back to my lateness here you know if i'm five minutes late i don't want to be screwed at that's just me i don't be screwed at too much you can take the piss out of me but if you get angry with me it was hard being in a relationship with someone it was a long distance thing yeah it didn't really work in the end i think being in a relationship is tough there's so many things each of you want from each other and i'm quite a demanding person i think in terms of are you high maintenance mate no i'm not high maintenance man no i'm more demanding in terms of they have to get my interests and stuff they have to be able to talk about my interests even if they don't know anything about it they just have to be able to somehow offer something about something and if they can't then i like to be mentally stimulated man and i think that's the highest demand of any girl that i date let's talk about the mental health in the relationships so mental health overthinking is when you have someone you committed to even in the short term you never know if it's going to work out but you have that optimism you have that potential there's that feeling of oh you give them a message i used to feel this i used to message girl and just wait for their response and then when they didn't respond for like a couple of hours, I was like, flipping else. Am I? I don't know what the feelings are, man. It's like you're just waiting and you're thinking and girls' minds, they work differently to lads, I think. They overthink as well. But so do we. Yeah, it was problematic, especially over the COVID thing when you can't really see people. So the only method of communication is text or phone. I quite like the personal aspect of seeing someone. Yeah, there's a lot of anxiety as well. That came from my past relationship, mainly because I have to be with someone who's quite chilled. That's the good thing with mates you don't have to be in a relationship just meet like occasionally you speak to them occasionally you, you check in on them and you, know, you see if they're well but you're not in a relationship with them that's the thing when you're with someone who's like shouting at you for petty things for me that wasn't for me i think that's hard man finding that person who makes you feel at ease and calms those nerves and i am with someone who is that now who does make me feel really chilled makes me feel at home at the same time we have acknowledged there are some little niggling bits here and there nothing's gonna be 100 percent, but things 
things are going smoothly and if it works it works if it doesn't you know that should be the mentality of people now of course you'll be emotional in a relationship but if it works it will work and that'll be brilliant if it doesn't i think you still should be happy for the other person i'm not in any animosity with my ex so i messaged her not regularly a while back just message seeing if we're all right that's it there's no animosity like what's the point of having a grudge loneliness and isolation is something that i've suffered with quite badly over the years and it's taken me a long time to kind of learn tools to distract my mind and stop isolation taking hold have these two issues ever affected your life remo and if so when social media is a big thing man when you see people going out posting stories of even a meal and you're just at home you've had a day of nothing really you've done nothing maybe you've worked you want to just have that experience of having what they're having like a meal or just a drink is that fear of missing out on something yeah but at the same time it's can i just call someone up and just say how i'm feeling right now or will i just have to bottle this in i've had that i think a lot of people have i've had it as well just those days of oh where are my mates like where are they i had so many especially when lots of mates don't live in london most of my uni mates like all my uni mates live out of london and like you said our group meets but occasionally if we can organize a date so i think it's good to have just three or two mates you just speak to on the regs and if it's a message here and there also family man even it doesn't have to be like your, your own age i find it's just an uncle or something you just speak to just having that someone you can just hang out with on the weekends because weekends and friday nights if you work those are like the nights you want to make the most of right when you see other people's stories of them going out and you're just at home it depends maybe you like being at home but personally i like a mix i like watching the football at home sometimes but i like going out sometimes so sometimes you want that mix i have yeah felt lonely at times i'm kind of craving that social night out especially now like, you know everything's closing like no nightclubs pubs are a bit restricted bars are restricted and stuff so i'm not going to say the pandemic has worsened it though i've actually appreciated being able to do my journalism course during the pandemic and messaging friends i haven't spoken to in ages as well just giving a message and not fearing messaging someone you haven't spoken to in a while because they're that sort of how will they react to my message after not messaging that that's what i get sometimes in my head i don't know if you get that as well i feel it's getting rid of that fear of what will they think if i message them it's a big thing if i get in touch with them probably actually they'll appreciate it i don't know where that stems from but yeah slowly it will go i think Looking back on this period of your life, Reems, how have these experiences shaped the person I'm speaking to right now? Are you a completely different Remo to the 16-year-old shy lad with mediocre jokes or what can you tell me here? <laughs> the jokes are worse, mate. The jokes are worse. Now, I'm not a boy, mate. I'm a man. But I think so, man. There is that transition from being that boyish mentality to a, a manly mentality and just being able to talk about deeper things. At school, I think it would be very, very hard to speak about mental issues. 16, 15-year-old, who are you going to tell? Who are you going to come out to if you're gay? Who are you going to come out to if you're whatever? Will you be judged? And you just skirt the issue and you talk about things that pleasure you. Just stuff that we can relate to, but it's not too deep. When you hit uni, that shapes you in another way. You can talk about deeper things with mates you, you are comfortable with. But then again, it's all about yourself. And myself was, I'd have mates. Again, we'd talk about things, but you always have to... The DMC would come after a night out after you're a bit pissed. So it's kind of like there's a way in is maybe a bit of alcohol, maybe a bit of, you know, if you do drugs, you did drugs. Me, I never, but I, you know, I used to drink and used to let your mind roam free sometimes late at night with your mates. And then coming out of uni is where you enter the professional sphere usually, but hopefully you still got your mates that you can speak to about. And I think, like I mentioned before, you have to have like a couple of mates you can really just go deep into like stuff with. I think that shaped me now. Maybe I used to be scared of offering my opinion, like I've said my voice wasn't as potent enough but now discovered that sort of voice to give 
and it's a worthy opinion and I think a good tip for everyone else is like the more you read the more you know about the world the more you can kind of be confident in your own voice because you know what's going on as much as the media reports it to be the truth the more you read the more you look at both sides of any debate then the more resonance your voice gets and the more confidence you get yeah it stems from your mates from what you do in your life from being able to talk about deep things about mental health about relationships about literally anything man yeah i'm definitely not the same reams as i was when i was 16 for sure A big reason why we got together for this pod, mate, was your desire to speak about the South Asian mental health experience and how mental health is spoken about and viewed in South Asian and to a certain degree, black communities. What has it been like from your experience? What stereotypes or stigmas have you encountered that you can share with the listeners and maybe enlighten us a little bit? So personally, I've been fortunate to have a mum who I can just share anything with. I'm lucky. There's no prejudice. There's no like, oh, he's weak. A lot of people, a lot of parents, they don't recognise mental health as playing a part as of affecting someone's character, of affecting someone's performance in school, work, daily life. They just see it as weakness they see physical health physical health is fine even that sometimes gets criticized you've got to be like 100 healthy all the time but uh, mental health is because it's unseen it's considered non-existent or weak i'm not going to say that all south asians just people in general may consider this of course people who understand it won't consider it as weak they'll consider it something really deep that needs to be looked into whether it's therapy whether it's just talking to someone it just stems from just a conversation i guess in some south asian communities it's perceived as not being at the top of your game it's not even perceived as not real and yeah i'm not name names but there have been people you know who've suffered from mental illness that depression etc who haven't been taken seriously and even when they try and confess it to their parents the parents brush it off and don't really go deeper into why they just accept it and they don't look at the why i think people need to always look at the why why something happens and how to solve the why i'm not going to speak for south asian parents or their kids or whatever but yeah it's definitely something that needs to be looked into more because there's a lot of pressures on high achieving typically high achieving students like south asians are and this affects mental health you know man people go to like oxbridge they suffer from a lot of mental health problems due to the stress placed on them due to the workload and where can they vent to well if everyone's feeling the same and they're feeling trapped then it's hard man yeah i guess one saving grace is like you know got a good mom so fortunate to have someone who i can share stuff to and who she can share stuff with me as well it's not just a one-way thing so i think having that someone if, if it's a even if your mom it's just a mate man who won't judge you who will just listen and offer you advice doesn't have to offer you advice just be an ear for you and be a bit empathetic then having that conversation which is a two-way thing the mate can offer can talk to you about the mental health so yeah i think a two-way convo is definitely key to combat this in south asian communities when i talk to south asian mates and i read about the stigmas surrounding mental health in these communities what comes up is this idea of bringing shame to a particular family and i'm sure you'll know the cultural term for it i don't like the cultural term for it because it's honor and i don't like that term but how does that idea affect the community's relationship with mental health do you think it's hard for me to even say really because remember we talked about like, me being mauritian i'm not really south asian per se i have mates and they won't share maybe they do have mental health issues i think everyone does right everyone will have like a, an issue the honor part of it i I'm definitely disagreeable with because where's the honor in defending honor for mental health it's not a controllable thing sometimes you viral into cases and you can't control it but you have to control it to maintain the name of the family or to keep up appearances which isn't right and i think it's hard man it's hard to combat these 
traditional orthodox approaches because back in like I don't know where the parents came from whether it be South Asian countries whether it's African countries where it's everywhere maybe it wasn't talked about mental health you know better than anyone that mental health is still a relatively new thing to talk about uh, not only amongst mates but amongst parents or their kids so if you're in a household of an Asian family let's just create a scenario Asian family they've done well for themselves they've got good jobs the parents and then you've got a son maybe the parents suffer from mental health we don't even know but they don't even know it's his mental health I don't know what they see it as when the kid who has social media has friends who do talk about it if they're lucky enough then they address this to their parents and their parents don't know anything about it well of course the natural reaction is well you're weak you got to maintain this family's honor of being a strong family a successful family and yeah i don't agree with it but i don't know how, how you can combat it you got to get families in i guess or just open families eyes not sure how though maybe through religious communities the temple the temple is a big place for a traditional family right they always have these little discourses at the end most of the prayers are in hindi the one i go to anyway at the end there's a discourse of actions of like you know what you can do to be a better person but i think also they should maybe filter in a bit about mental health and there's nothing wrong with that just to talk about you know there's nothing wrong to talk to your kids or vice versa about mental health and that could be a good, it could be a good way in Our final topic of conversation reams, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Okay, so during the, the lockdown, I was doing my journalism course every day. I was motivated. They're, the people on the course, they motivated me to write articles, to find topics to talk about, to find these people on Instagram, to find stories, basically. Now that's ended... The drive has dried up. I'm sort of telling myself I'm giving myself a break, which I am. It's an intense course. Writing a lot is intense. Learning a lot is intense. But at the same time, to find that motivation again is tough. Yeah, I was having a talk with not my mate, with my cousin's mate. You know, I don't really know him that well. He's really inspirational. He was like, yeah, man, just push yourself to get that discipline. Even if it's 10 minutes of something you don't really like doing a day. Not don't like doing, but not used to doing a day like reading or applying for a job, whatever it is, then that discipline will come in regularly. So that was a good piece of advice from him. So in that sense, I'm going to be honest, my mental health is actually pretty stable right now. Anxiety is something I used to suffer with, like, you know, these heart, it's not even heart palpitation, like stomach flutterings and stuff. I don't know, people often get that when they overthink or when something bad happens. But no, even that's pretty, really good. I'm trying to go on daily runs and that just clears the mind. It's good for the breathing, it's a bit of music as well. It's really good, man. And the football was back, so I'm, my time is good spent on that as well. Yeah, but in general, it's good, man. I can't complain. I've got good mates. I've got my family around me. The pandemic hasn't affected anyone close to me, fortunately. Yeah, man, I try and not look at social too much as well. Twitter, yes, because that's got news, like a little bit of stupid debate on there as well. Yeah, I try and just do what I like. And what age do you think you were when you first realised that these feelings you were having about anxiety or rumination weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I always knew it was in my mind, though. It wasn't something like a cold breeze hit me and then I got like fluttering. No, it was like I thought of something and then you get it. I always knew it was in the mind. Probably a good thing, right, to know that straight away. Yeah, man, it, can li- it literally can be a trigger. It literally can be just something has happened 
in your life someone's come into your life and has triggered something negative in your mind and that causes a bodily reaction you have to kind of condition yourself out of it sort of thing there are ways to combat this be it meditation be it just immersing yourself in something you love or just talking to your mates yeah i think getting rid of negative vibes in your life helps a lot man and trying to not associate previous bad things like being shouted at or being criticized or being whatever by whoever and try not associate that with current people in your life like just distance yourself and yeah basically just spend time with people who actually matter really toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast reams and it's one i try and break down a lot what do you define as toxic masculinity and what examples have it have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners in school uni or otherwise as there was definitely a few in school when we were together toxic masculinity in school yeah it's always just trying to be the big man isn't it just trying to having the be not group having the group of ogs the group of like oh yeah we're better than you because we have something that you don't which i don't even know what that was yeah just like we have something over you not better social skills definitely not I don't even know what it was. Ugh. It's just like trying to act up, trying to be the big man for no reason, really. There's no reason behind it. It's just flaunting yourself for no reason. I don't even know, man. Toxic masculinity has been thrown around so much nowadays. I don't even know what it means anymore. But for me, it's just trying to be too much of a man when a man isn't even defined. Like, a man can cry. What the hell? There's nothing wrong with that. But these guys we're talking about would never do that. They would never shed a tear, man. I think toxic masculinity is trying to big yourself up to who you're not really. And we're all human at the end of the day, but some people don't even recognise that when they try and push themselves into this fear of being everything when they're really inside, maybe not as they portray. I also talk a lot about this idea of positive masculinity, mate, and hopefully in a few years time, just masculinity will be positive masculinity. How would you define it? And what qualities do you think a man should exude to be described as positively masculine? Being able to talk freely with each other, be it men or women, about anything. It doesn't have to be politically correct either. Yeah, so that's one. Two, showing emotion that should just be accepted, like a man, woman, whatever. Like masculinity doesn't mean you have to hide your tears, doesn't mean you have to hide your emotions, doesn't mean you have to always put on a strong voice. If you quiver in your voice, that's fine. If you don't like something that is generally liked that's fine i love a bit of rock music i love a bit of indie i love a bit of the smiths does that make me less of a man no or because the general scene is grime or hip-hop which i love as well it's just being able to share what you really like as well and not cater to stereotypes of what men should be i think which is being this monolith one-dimensional tough guy yeah there are people who i mean there are people who appreciate that man there are girls who appreciate that there are friends who appreciate that and i think masculinity is basically not having to cater to any prejudices or views of what a man should be why do you think historically men have struggled to express how they're feeling about their mental health or feelings in general do you think society has taught us that it's not okay for us to show vulnerability or have we as men done it to ourselves Depends, I guess men together, let's say let's say you're in a group of men, topics talked about will tend not to relate to emotion too much, right? It'll just be maybe a sporting activity, be a maybe a film, a bit of music. But let's say you're speaking about a song with someone as a man, it'll be on the surface level, it'll be just like, Oh yeah, I love this song. But it won't be like, Oh yeah, this made this song made me cry the other day because of this. It'll just be like, Oh yeah, the lyrics are banging the 
feet is sick. But then going deeper, things I don't even know if it's limited to men. Though. That's the thing. You know, I don't want to just say men aren't able to talk about this. I, I want to acknowledge women as well. Like, I don't know if, if they share more emotion. Whether it's conditioned into us by society, I can't really comment on that. Everyone has their own experiences, their own family, the way of sharing stories, the way of talking about different issues. And just finally, Reams, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? Just get more people like you out there, mate. Just get your promotions going. Uh, just having conversations, man. Just having forums. It doesn't have to be solely men because men have to share their emotions with everyone right not solely men so yeah having mixed forums and having women share their emotions with men freely whether it's practical right now under the covid thing actually you could could do zoom forums that could be a thing so that could be a good starting point man little conversation snippets you just go into a room with just a randomer and just try and speak about topics deeper than what's the weather like and if you connect on that vibe that'd be fantastic if you don't so be it you've not lost anything you've maybe not gained much but you've tried yeah you've got to try to have these conversations i think in a forum Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to my old mate, Remal, for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or please, if you're feeling generous, give us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay.